Today on the show, we've got a full arsenal of zips and booms and swishes and zaps. We're talking weapons. Yes, we are. (laughs) Welcome to Gamjabar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. I'm Leo. And my name's Abu. And today we are talking weapons. Yes. The means of of violent ends and violent delights, so to speak. (laughs) Whoa. Whoa. Okay. Sorry. That's a Westworld reference. That's really intense if you don't know Westworld. I think we talked about violent delights on our Planet to Dune episode when we talked about Gamont. Oh, my so. God. Yeah. Hedonistic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Definitely. No, I'm really <laughs> excited about today's episode, Leo. This was a topic that you had come up with, mm-hmm. so I got to give credit where credit is due, of course. Thank you. And today's spoiler-free episode is going to be all about the weaponry. Yeah. And the weapons of death and destruction and combat that we encounter in the Dune series and that we learn about in the Dune Encyclopedia. So I'm excited. There are a lot of facts in today's episode, honestly, even as a huge Dune fan, that were surprising to me. Yeah. So this may be a spoiler-free episode that's appropriate for newcomers to the Dune universe, but I highly recommend that if you're already a huge fan of Dune, keep listening, because you're going to learn some fun facts that aren't so obvious just by reading the novels. With a lot of these episodes, my goal is... The first time I was reading Dune, what little details distracted me and pulled me out of the action and pulled me out of the fun? And we're going to clear those things up so that this SAT prep class (laughs) (laughs) will continue preparing you for your first journey. And exactly to your point, if you're a longtime Dune fan, there's some juicy, juicy bits in here. It's going to be fun. Definitely. And one last thing we want to say right up top is that we've been getting quite a few emails from our listeners, and we love getting those emails. Keep sending those. So just a reminder, gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com is where you can just say hello. You can share your opinions. You can tell us where we got something wrong. (laughs) How to pronounce something. (laughs) How to pronounce something. Please help us with that. Any, Any and all of those things. Yeah please do that. Reach out to us. We love to hear from you. It's so much fun. And we do our best to respond to every single email we get. So we'd love to get to know you. Absolutely. So let's get into it. Before we start talking about specific weapons, I thought it appropriate to look at the history of weaponry, some kind of big kind of historic beats that very much set the stage for what people use on, you know, a moment to moment basis. Hmm. And Honestly, it's more weapons than you'd expect. I don't know. I, I know that sci-fi kind of builds itself on there are conflicts. And when you come to a conflict, what are the tools that people use in these conflicts? But still, I was surprised going through Dune of the variety. There's really a lot. Even if we don't see all of them, many of them do appear, which is cool. I mean, again, we're seeing the depth of this world. And a lot of what we're talking about is from the like main text <laughs> Yeah, it's really interesting how much of a factor that is. 
in the Dune novels. And you're right, sci-fi is usually based heavily on the cool, like, zip-zap lasers and gadgets (laughs) and all of those cool things that, you know, make sci-fi what it is and make it fun. But what's interesting is the history of the Dune universe makes it so that there's not as much zip-zapping going around, you know? (laughs) Not many zips, not many zaps. (laughs) A lot of a lot of zips and then just thunderous booms. Right, right. <laughs> a lot of thunderous booms. And one of the things that goes boom is something we've actually covered in a previous episode. So our episode about an incredible genius named Holdsman. Right. If you haven't listened to that one, listen to it. It's maybe one of my favorite episodes we've done. But in that episode, we talked about the technology that Holtzman introduces to the galaxy. He's a genius mathematician. Yeah. He changes the face of the galaxy not once, not twice, but three <laughs> times. He also angers a lot of librarians. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. They're so mad. So Holtzman is an important character. And yeah. around 3800 BG, which is before Guild on the timeline of the Dune universe, this is about 13,000 years mm-hmm. before the first pages of the Dune novel, of the first Dune novel. Yeah, Holtzman introduces... Essentially, the technology that later becomes shields. Yeah. And we saw this in the trailer. If you've seen the trailer, you saw Paul and Gurney dueling each other and the the quick flashes of blue. They're wearing those body shields. That's all thanks to Holtzman's technology. Right. The interesting part here is Paul and Gurney are using swords and hand-to-hand combat because shields make laser guns obsolete (laughs) in some sense. Because if a laser... Yeah comes in contact with a Holtzman shield, right. you got yourself a nuclear <laughs> explosion, baby. Yeah. And we'll cover this briefly because we talked about Holtzman and we talked about the shielding technology in that episode. But mm-hmm. very briefly, the shields repel any fast moving thing. So even if we were using like a good old revolver, the bullet would be repelled because it's moving so quickly, right? So right. old fashioned projectile weapons with the invention of shields become nearly useless. Mm -hmm. And one of the only weapons that still maybe has kind of an unintended effect (laughs) is the laser gun, which is really in a lot of ways too useful. You're like, (laughs) I'd like to destroy right over there. And the shield and the laser get together and they go, you want to destroy like a whole lot All of it? Should we just trash the entire (laughs) place? Oh my God, should we treat ourselves? (laughs) Let's just like blow up the whole place. This is great. (laughs) (laughs) To be clear, that's the shield and the laser getting together and just having a blast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Uh, (laughs) We don't deserve that laugh. Don't nobody. I hope none of our listeners laugh at that one. You're totally right, though. Laser guns, shields get along a little bit too well and cause atomic explosions to happen. And like I was saying earlier, in the modern world of Dune, when we encounter it in the books, people are using close combat weaponry, swords, daggers, knives. They're using hand-to-hand combat and martial arts because things like laser guns are much too dangerous to use, thanks to shielding technology. You left out uh, one of the things that you'll notice is a theme across many of these weapons, poisons. (laughs) So many poisons. So many. It's really, it's funny (laughs) because as we're talking, there's this kind of theme that arises where it's like, oh yeah, this is a sword. Uh, often covered in poison. Oh, that? That's like, uh, I don't know, a way of hitting people. Uh, y- usually you hit them with poison. Um, and Right, right. That's just drinking things, but it's also poison. Right. I mean, 
What gets past a shield, Leo? Poison. Poison. And very slow, soft punches. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. Simple yeah. as that. <laughs> So to wrap up this uh, sort of history section on weapons, Holtzman obviously changes weaponry in the Dune universe. Right. Another thing called the Great Convention, which we talked about in our timeline episode, outlaws thinking machines. And that's a result of the Butlerian Jihad, which we, again, also talked about in our timeline episode. Right. That's really a foundational episode, I'm realizing. If you haven't listened to that two-part episode on the timeline of Dune, <laughs> you must. We were pretty smart putting that first. <laughs> Yeah, hmm. weird how we put that one first, as if we wanted everyone to start with that one. Right. But in that episode, we go into great detail about the Great Convention and thinking machines. And the gist here is that thinking machines and artificial intelligence and really just like super smart technology is banned as a result of of the bloodshed in the Butlerian Jihad. So what that means is that Smart weaponry that's maybe computer-assisted, has some sort of uh, artificial intelligence component to it, is also banned, and we don't see many of those things in the Dune universe. Right, right. Yeah, because it's also, it's it's not just artificial intelligence. It's like any machine that is made in the image of the mind. Yes. You know, I think about drones, right? Like right now in the world, drones are this modern edge of warfare. Well, they, they take computers. And computers are not okay, <laughs> not okay anymore. Right. So really, by stripping away these elements of the sci-fi universe, inevitably we are left with biological means and, and maybe older-fashioned things. And, you know, I, I say biological specifically because one of the other elements that plays a huge part in the kind of combat abilities of characters you're going to meet in Dune are techniques and methods that have been developed over hundreds if not thousands of years in this world where close quarters combat is this big deal so we're talking about you know developing methods for really heightening you know their speed or their their natural strength or their uh resistance to different things or um, their Mm -hmm. dexterity or their agility things like that or you know I don't know, sex appeal. <laughs> it's like, they're like, how <laughs> hot can I be to like distract this enemy? <laughs> espionage. It's important in espionage. <laughs> Yo, true. I mean, listen, James Bond always dressed well. Keep that in mind. Exactly. Yeah, you're, you're totally right. So much of the technology in Dune is based in biological augmentation and it's instead of like the zip zap of like star trek (laughs) sci-fi we we have like the gross disgusting squelch scorch clay laxu genetic modifications (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) so you're getting that's another theme that we're going to encounter in the the next hour or so as we talk about these weapons uh so That basically covers the history of weapons and sets the scene for some of the specific weaponry that we're going to, we should get into now. And we wanted to categorize them by type of weapon. So what we're going to start with is close range weaponry, which happens to be the most common type of weaponry, again, because of a brilliant man named Holtzman. Totally. Close range weapons and hand-to-hand combat are the primary way of fighting in the dune universe you really want to see the whites of their eyes when you murder them leo wow that was yeah yes indeed (laughs) so to to start off with some specifics uh these are three kind of handheld things these are the bodkin the kinjal and the slip tip slip tip slip tip yeah (laughs) that's just fun to say 
It is fun to say. I mean, Bodkin and Kinjal, and that's how I say it. What how, Kinjal? Probably Kinjal. That's how right? I've been saying it too. Kind Jal. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, let's start with those. So the bodkin is a small knife, and this is sheathed on the wrist that we actually see uh, pretty early on in Dune. Uh, we see this in a scene. Mm. Um, and then, which is, this is kind of a pattern. Mm-hmm. We don't see it ever again. <laughs> in fact, just to be sure I wasn't forgetting anything, I did a word search in all of the <laughs> Frank Herbert Dune books. Yo. Never again is it mentioned <laughs> other than, you know, like the first third of the book. But this is cool. This is dope. I'm definitely getting... I don't know if anybody listening has played, like, the Assassin's Creed games. You, you play those, right, Apu? Oh, yeah. I love them. Oh, great, right? So you say, mm-hmm. sheathed knife on the wrist, and I'm like... Hidden blade. Yeah. I know what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Dope. So cool. Um, now, one of the differences is, based on the wording of when it's mentioned, it does seem that the blade is sheathed on the wrist, and then you move it to your hand. So it kind of... You unsheathe it, and then you're holding it in your hand like a small knife. Right. But always available, always accessible. Right. At, within arm's reach at all times. That's the point. <laughs> That's the point. It's there. Indeed. So convenient. So convenient. <laughs> now... The more common, I would say, blade that comes up quite a bit in the Dune novels right. is this next one, the Kinjal. Yeah. And this one we see quite often and it seems to be the most widespread weapon in the Imperium. A lot of people are using Kinjals in this empire. And what a Kinjal is, it, to summarize it, is a, quote, curved, double-bladed short sword. And uh, as common as it is, it's really just in the first book. <laughs> it doesn't come yeah. up much after the first <laughs> yeah. novel, but it is a weapon that's common throughout the Imperium. And I believe Oscar Isaac's character, who is Leto Atreides, right. he uses one. Yeah. And so uh, other characters definitely reference them. Right, right. But again, it's not like it's a sword. It's like a short sword. Right, you know, right. like there's not much more to it beyond like this is a weapon of war. And it's used fairly commonly in the in the empire. Yeah, the kinjal, even though it doesn't show up, to your point, it's it's kind of talked about. And the way that it's talked about implies that this is part of the common vernacular. This is something that people refer to, right? And in the same way that you know, well, I mean, I mean, Leo, you you know this. I say this all the time. <laughs> never leave home without your kinjal. Yeah, you actually do say that. Way too often. <laughs> right. To talk. Phone, phone, wallet, phone, wallet, yeah. keys, kinjal. You, you have to be careful when you're padding that pocket because, again, it is a short sword. <laughs> it is very sharp on both sides, as we've covered. <laughs> Honey, you forgot your kinjal again. <laughs> I told you not to leave the kinjal on the dinner table. Oh, my God. Um we hear someone talk about it like as a euphemism for assassination, right? Like he will meet, a, well, you know, we'll introduce him to a kinjal, you know, where he's sleeping with the fishes. Yeah. We'll give him some cement shoes, right? <laughs> this is like a brutish euphemism, but it bespeaks the the common nature of kinjal, of this weapon that people refer to casually and the listener doesn't go, what are you talking about? <laughs> I don't, I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And uh, hopefully, rather than having that reaction now, you know what it means. Right. Yeah. So our final blade in this category is the slip tip 
which is so fun to say. Mm -hmm. So from the terminology of the Imperium at the end of the first Dune novel, this is what a slip tip is defined as, quote, any thin short blade, often poison tipped, there it is, poison, gotta have it, (laughs) for left hand use in shield fighting. And we do encounter a slip tip in the first Dune novel, but uh, you know, we're sensing a little pattern here. <laughs> right. It doesn't come up after the first novel again, at least as far as I can remember. But a slip tip, honestly, is seems to me more like just like a general name for a, a, a short blade that's often poisoned. Yeah, yeah. You know, which could apply to so many things, so many weapons in the Dune universe. And thin. And thin. Oh, needs to be thin. Oh, you're right. right. You're right. N- none of those big double C thick blades that are that are poisoned. <laughs> no, those are not not slip tips. <laughs> those are something. Right. Those are thick tips. Thick tips. Ew. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> Unsubscribed. <laughs> oh my god, that needs to be a shirt. Thick tip. <laughs> That's horrible. I like kind of love it. You got to cut that or <laughs> keep it. Yeah. It's up to you. Oh my god. <laughs> and and I get the impression that Frank in the beginning of the first book really goes at lengths to drop terms. And as you read the first book, you'll you'll hear a lot of words that will come up over and over again and you'll also hear words that don't. And that's part of the world and that's part of Dune. But I also get the impression that like kinjals and slip tips and bodkins are around and mm-hmm. they are in a lot of scenes we just don't talk about them because they stop being remarkable after we encounter them for the first time that's a great point and again we're talking about something you're going to see in a lot of these scenes and i will consider gum jabbar a success if someone is sitting in the theater and thinks i wonder if that's a kinjal <laughs> yes oh my gosh uh, absolutely yeah you know and, and if you watch the trailer you're kind of like is that Duncan Idaho with a kinjal? It could be. Yeah. It could be. Absolutely. So it's fun. It's fun world building. And like, I love your your little sort of analysis of like, yeah, in the first novel, perhaps Frank is just coming up with some cool terms and cool words and doing some world building, but it just becomes less cool to keep bringing that up. You <laughs> <Yeah>. know, like <laughs> six books in, if he was like dropping slip tip constantly, you'd be like, Jesus, I get it. I get it. Guy. God. <laughs> Talk more about the thick tips. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so th- those are those are three common blades in the Dune universe: Bodkin, Kinjal, and Slim Tip. But this next one is probably the most important one. Yeah, yeah. Even if it's not the most common across the Empire, so those other three blades are used across the Empire, across millions of planets, right? Across many houses and militaries. This next one, the Chris knife is not a common weapon, but is so hugely important to the story of Dune. Yeah, it's it's iconic. I mean, this is this is truly like if we were to pull an artifact from Dune that symbolizes a major theme, definitely the Chris knife would be in the top picking. Yeah. Now, to that end, there are certain things we can't say about it. Yeah. <laughs> and I think there's a joy to discovering it for yourself the first time you read it. And if you know all about Dune... I think you'll agree. Totally. There's some really great mysteries to uncover. But these are the weapon of choice for the Fremen of Arrakis. So we see Javier Bardem is playing a character named Stilgar. And 
A character like Stilgar likely has a Chris knife. This is the weapon of choice of his people. They're described as a double-edged, about eight inches long, uh, milky white, and, yeah, you know, it's a knife. And commonly, here's that theme again, poison! Poison! <laughs> so poisoned, uh, many of them. And... Abu, where do these come from? You just buy them, right? You just you just uh, go to the store and you go to your Chris knife store and you go at like oh. two fresh Chris knives, oh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Walmart sells them, you know. Yeah, you can pick up a Chris knife and you <laughs> in bulk. Yeah, just a pack of ten in bulk. <laughs> no, not at all. It is very difficult to get a Chris knife, and that actually plays into some of the very significant cultural impact of the Chris knife. Right, a Chris knife is made from the tooth. Of a sandworm. Yeah. Now, if you've seen the trailer, you've seen a sandworm. Yeah. You saw its <laughs> mouth at the end of that trailer. Oh, my God. One of those teeth is filed down and fashioned into this sacred knife of the Fremen people. And there's a lot of ceremonial practices around this knife, too. Like, this this knife is sacred in many ways to the culture of the Fremen and is very important to the story itself. Right. A couple of things I wanted to just note here. Some of the superstitions that surround this blade, uh, one that I found interesting was no offworlder was permitted to see a Chris knife and then leave Arrakis without express permission from a Fremen. Yeah. And the Dune Encyclopedia actually mentions a lot of, quote, mysterious murders on Arrakis can be attributed to this <laughs> hmm. superstition around the Chris knife, you know? You know, the Arrakis-themed Clue board game is a lot of this corpse in the desert with a Chris knife. <laughs> oh, you solved it again. <laughs> wow, that's the 19th game in a row that had that exact solution. <laughs> right, right. So I, I found that so funny, like this idea that you might I guess for some crazy reason, vacation to Iraq is accidentally see a Chris knife and get your ass murdered because <laughs> it's just the, the superstition around such a sacred knife that comes from such a powerful and sacred animal, the, the sandworm. Yeah. And there's this extra element. Once the blade is unsheathed, it cannot be returned without drawing blood. Hey, this is how intense this is. You're not willy nilly whipping out the Chris knife. No, you're not swinging that bad boy around you pull this out when you mean business and you anticipate it drawing blood because if if you don't then it's going to anger the god it's going to anger god so think about that for a moment you know for as as much as you could imagine people with cool weapons wanting to show them off all the time absolutely the fremen with the chris knife are really only drawing these in really intense moments of of high stakes so again we don't want to say too much more than that but clearly uh, uh an item with a lot of significance and the one thing that i did want to mention and this gets back to what i was saying at the beginning of the episode mm -hmm. there is a moment when someone is talking about a chris knife and they say this chris knife is unfixed this is an unfixed chris knife and i seriously got pulled out of that moment and i thought oh my god i have no idea what that means <laughs> So I did want to talk about the fact that Chris knives are made and fashioned by two methods. Mm -hmm. And this is actually directly from the terminology of the Imperium, Frank's own words. Quote, the two forms are fixed and unfixed. An unfixed knife requires proximity to a human body's electrical field to prevent disintegration. 
Uh, and then fixed knives are treated for storage. So interesting. You know, when we're talking about biology, we're talking about a, a knife, which seems the crudest of implements, but one that needs to be kept near your body or else it will literally disintegrate, which again, then makes it hard for maybe off-worlders to get them, right? This is preventing them from becoming widespread. Right. It's such an interesting twist to add to this this artifact or this weapon. So cool. Yeah, that is very cool. And, you know, Leo, like I always say, <laughs> never go to bed without your Chris knife. A lot of your sayings <laughs> have to do with carrying <laughs> knives on you. <laughs> I'm noticing. <laughs> But you're right. I never go to bed without my Chris knife. So you know what? Absolutely. It's my saying now, too. <laughs> exactly. Just a pro tip from from a knife <laughs> enthusiast, you might say. So to wrap up our section here about close combat weapons, we've talked about Chris knives. We've talked about bodkins, kinjal, slip tips, the more common types of blades in the Dune universe. <laughs> Thick tips. <laughs> <laughs> Less common, those. Less common. <laughs> Let's just wrap up here. There are other blades beyond just sort of daggers, knives, and short swords. There are brief mentions of things like stilettos, and uh, we even see in the trailer Duncan Idaho use some sort of bladed weapon to battle those Sardaukar warriors. It looks like some sort of machete, but it could be Denny Villeneuve's interpretation of a kinjaw. Who knows? But it still looks very, very cool. Yeah. We do see Paul Atreides in that trailer salute with a knife. Right. Seemingly a Chris knife, but we'll have to wait and see and confirm that, whether it's just, you know, one of his personal knives that he trains with or it's an official Chris knife that he gets in the movie. We'll have to wait and see. But it, there are other types of weapons beyond these sort of poison tipped uh, short swords and Chris knives. Uh, other weapons like axes and rapiers are also briefly mentioned at some point in the novels. <laughs> <Right>. but. <laughs> It's just yeah. like, like not worth bringing up because they don't make notable appearances. Like, you know, uh, you know, a battle happens and someone's waving an axe. Like that's yeah, the extent of it. <laughs> not a huge yeah. notable thing to bring up. Background characters. Right. Right. So we, we wanted to bring up some of the major ones that have names that have certain styles, but there are just sort of generic weapons as well in the Dune universe. So moving on, though Holtzman shields did make it quite difficult to fight with projectile weapons there are still projectile weapons and some of these play kind of a bigger part in the story than i remembered yeah you know like i think after finishing the books i really had an impression of like this is mostly hand-to-hand -hand and maybe some small weapons but there are actually some named projectile weapons that i had completely forgotten about mm -hmm. now these weapons are often used by the kind of bigger military forces. So we talked a lot about in some earlier episodes, the houses, the imperial houses, who all often have sort of standing armies. If you're invading a planet, although projectile weapons might not be so good against someone with a personal shield, it could still be good against structures. It could still be good against uh, animals or beasts. It could be good against a number of things in a number of situations. So they're around, they are used, and they kind of fall into these categories of how likely am I to encounter a shield? <laughs> like, <laughs> if I'm definitely encountering some shields, might leave the laser gun at home, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But if I, like, I'm not really sure, well, there are some specific tools that we can bring with us. 
Right. And one of those tools is one that we actually see a lot in the books, and it comes up quite a bit. Yeah. The Mala pistol is mentioned a few times in the novels. And what it basically is, is a pistol that shoots <laughs> oftentimes poisoned <Yep. laughs> darts. So it's it's a dart, fancy dart thrower of sorts. It's spring-loaded, yeah. and it has a range of about 40 meters. Yeah. And again, as we like to do on this podcast, we're going to convert that to football fields for our American <laughs> listeners. Right. And that that is about – that's just shy of half a football field right. is the range for a Mala pistol. And it's a very common weapon. Right. And the nice thing here and the important thing is that a Mala pistol can breach a personal shield. Yeah. The darts themselves – shoot at a slow enough speed that the shield doesn't automatically deflect it doesn't consider it a high projectile weapon so this is a this is a pretty common weapon that we come across a number of times in the novels i actually really liked in the i think it was in the encyclopedia was saying it can breach a personal shield depending on the relative speed of the target and the firer right yes so it is such a slim margin it can breach a personal shield but if that person were rushing towards you it probably would not because the projectile is moving relative to them too fast so if you are you know you're cornered in the in the in the, the desert by the legendary fremen warrior uh, <laughs> you know colin and he shoots his he's about to he's leveling his mala pistol at you oh snap ready to, well this, he wouldn't because he has a Chris knife, but he's never, he's not going to show you that. He's not going to show you it. It's a secret. Don't, don't look for Collins Chris knife, but he, lo he lowers the Mala pistol at you because he doesn't take you seriously or something. And what should you do? Well, if you run away, that lowers the relative speed. You might get darted by statistically a poison dart. Yeah. Yeah. Probably poison. So run towards him, run, rush him. Yeah. Because that's, that's shield, baby. <laughs> that's that weird Holtzman effect <laughs> yeah I love it yeah <laughs> S such a such a fun wrinkle on the classic warfare that we see in so much sci-fi but y you're totally right that there is a chance that the dart will breach the shield but there's a chance that it doesn't so you know mala pistol hit or miss baby you never know <laughs> you shoot the dart you never know what you're gonna get on the other end of it yeah <laughs> but I did want to cover, so I looked into Mala Pistols a little deeper yeah. because we never actually understand the mechanics in the Dune novels. or We just know it's a dart thrower right. in the Dune novels, and it doesn't get any deeper than that. But if you look in the encyclopedia, there is a brief history of Mala Pistols, and I thought it was kind of fun and interesting. So I want to give you a quick synopsis of it and go over it briefly. Cool. Yeah. So the Mala Pistol was developed by Jen Maltharen on the planet Bezel 2 in 3741. Nice. Not to derail you. Is that BG or AG? Do you know? That's AG. That's After Guild. Gotcha. And that's actually an important point to bring up because After Guild is also after the Butlerian Jihad. Oh, yeah. And Bezel 2, since the Butlerian Jihad, had suppressed its technology because during the Jihad, it had been absolutely ravaged by the forces, the deadly forces of the Butlerian Jihad. Right. So... Bezel II was almost a extremely simplistic culture by this point. 3,000 years later in 3741, when Jen makes the Mala pistol, it is a solution to a problem where they don't have traditional weapons and they, she needed to develop something extremely simple that could be used offensively. So a basic spring-loaded dart thrower was the solution. Yeah. 
So I thought that it was interesting that there was a direct through line from the Butlerian Jihad, from that slaughter, changing the culture of the planet that developed this much simpler type of pistol. Now, I guess it was the hot new thing because the Mala pistol like quickly became the planet's one of the planet's best selling exports. Yeah. And by the time we get to like the 7,000s, so a few thousand years later, yeah. and after the Mala pistol is maybe developed, we get V2, V3, we get the, the Mala pistol Pro Max 10 <laughs> at that point. Yeah, although everybody called it X. It everyone dumb. called it X. It was very weird. <laughs> by that point, it becomes one of the most commonly used weapons in the entire galaxy, and it it's, sells like hotcakes on the galactic market. So good job, Jen, and her family i hope i hope the gen estate is still cashing in those royalties <laughs> gotta tell you i was picturing the like 90s sockum bopper-esque mala pistol commercials of like the hot new toy like throw darts at your friends <laughs> pistol, you know <laughs> more fun than a bodkin fight poisoning the tip can result in serious harm or injury please consult your doctor <laughs> so funny but yeah a very important weapon in the dune universe well if you read dune for the first time you'll come across it uh throughout the series and now you know a little bit of history about it and uh you know some of the specifics of how it works fun we have fun here on yeah. <laughs> you know what we have fun here <laughs> amazing so this next one you added and i don't remember it <laughs> because it's never brought up oh no <laughs> <laughs> this is solely from the encyclopedia and i just wanted to very briefly mention it so like ah uh, okay give me 60 seconds to go over it here oh cool yeah this next pistol is called the baradai pistol perhaps is the pronunciation <laughs> of that it doesn't matter it never a single time comes up in the dune novels this is just sort of fun extended lore from the encyclopedia but it is a pistol-type weapon found in a Fremen Frem kit, which is a, a desert survival kit that you need on Arrakis. Right. Now, the, the cool thing about it is that it's not a combat weapon. You're not using it offensively. Oh, okay. It's used to measure or signal, and that's it. Like, the encyclopedia doesn't explain what that means. So I imagine some sort of, like, flare gun type of thing that you would need to survive in the desert. Yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to, like, take 60 seconds to mention that that's a thing we never experience it in the dune novel so this is perhaps something that won't be on the final exam <laughs> one of the few extra credit things that you know <laughs> name one thing that's only from the yeah right this would be one of those yeah exactly this would be like an extra credit question on the final exam but it's not going to actually affect your score <laughs> yeah, so yeah. don't worry about it folks so the last projectile weapon that we get a lot of, basically. And this is probably the most... How, how do we say that? This weapon comes up. This is, of course, the laser gun. And, Abu, didn't you talk about the laser gun as one of your bits of technology in the Technology of Dune episode? Yes. Yeah, if you want to go really in-depth on the laser gun, check out the Technology of Dune episode, because, again, we covered it there. All of these things are interconnected. All of our episodes, I feel like, at this point, 
we're repeating ourselves. Right, right. I, sh- I should just start copy-pasting notes from old scripts into new scripts. Oh, that would save so much time. That would save so much time. But <laughs> briefly, we wanted to, again, if we're talking about the weapons, it, we would be remiss not to talk about the laser gun. Right. So we'd like to cover it again in brief, but a lot of this detail we actually talked about before on the Technology of Dune episode. Right. But to reiterate, yeah. because of Holtzman Shields, laser weapons have fallen out of popularity. Extremely dangerous. Boom, you know? Much boom. Lots of boom. Much much boom happens when you use them around shields. <laughs> yeah. So, laser guns are now honestly used primarily for hunting, wildlife, or just for sport. Yeah. And just to briefly go over the history of laser guns once again, the earliest laser guns were these massive, huge things that were used primarily as anti-aircraft and anti-satellite weapons. Right. As they got smaller... The technology improved, obviously, but even the smaller personal laser guns early on in their lifetime were extremely power hungry. And if you had a personal laser gun that you carried into battle, you had to lug around a massive power pack to plug it into and actually use. Yeah. And even these power packs were extremely inefficient. The encyclopedia states that early laser guns could only get maybe 10 shots out of a single power pack before you had to replace it. So Oof. it's really not the thing you're like charging into battle with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But obviously, as the technology improved and got better and more efficient and more compact and more deadly, laser guns became more prominent and quickly became the weapon across the early empire. This is before Holtzman shows up, before shielding technology is a thing. Right. Right. Laser guns were the most common weapon across the empire, used by every single military force. But of course, as we've discussed, Holtzman arrives, shielding technology becomes a thing, and laser guns become effectively useless in combat if your enemy has shielding technology. So right, right. at this point in the Dune universe, laser gun ownership and production is actually strictly controlled because, again, <laughs> the, the risk. The, the risk of nuclear fucking explosion. Yeah. <laughs> there are laws around this now. We we also would limit if, if pistols caused nuclear explosions, you'd have to have a permit, folks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you'd have to have a very, very good reason to buy one. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. So lace guns are just things that maybe collectors have now. Some mil- military forces do have them, and we do actually come across them in the Dune novel. So it's not like they're totally out of use. But uh, even those collectors are, for example, banned from owning the power packs that would actually power a laser gun. You could just collect it, you know. Uh, I'm a knife guy myself, so <laughs> I wouldn't know anything about that. I do like that detail. I like that detail a lot. Yeah. Again, if I wanted a hobby in the Dune universe, yeah, let me collect these artifacts mm-hmm. post-Butlerian Jihad. There are probably these like burned out planets covered in the wreckage of battles. Go pick up like a, an old antique laser gun. That's awesome. And then I like that they say, well, you're not allowed to have, <laughs> you can't have ammo. You can have the thing. Okay. You can have the big thing. You can't have ammo. Right. Exactly. I love that. I think that's cool. That's fun world building. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the last thing I want to say about laser guns is, again, we do see them in the Dune novels. They're rarely used by defense forces and military forces, primarily only in situations where shields don't come into play or you know that there won't your enemy won't have shields for whatever reason and there are a couple of instances i won't get into any spoilers here but there are some instances in the dune novels where shielding doesn't come into play right right and we do see people use laser guns in those instances 
so again, laser guns still kind of around, but not not the preferred mode of uh, of combat at this point in the Dune universe. You know, focusing on laser guns and talking about how dangerous it is for everyone to have access to effectively nuclear explosions on demand. <laughs> uh, let's transition now to another method of sort of long range weaponry, or 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 sort of definitely not <laughs> blades and handhelds. Yeah, but atomics. Oh my God, atomics! Oh my gosh, yes. So here's here's a scenario that certainly hasn't happened in the real world. Uh huh. Uh huh. Two uh, opposing forces. Yep. One of them has atomic weapons. Mm. The other one's like, uh oh. Well, I better get some so that they don't use them against me. <laughs> and then both of them effectively race to have the most atomic weapons. Mm. Again, I know this sounds utterly unbelievable. This sounds like fiction. I know. Yeah. But just picture it for a second. This is something. <laughs> okay, I can't. I can't keep going. <laughs> this is something. <laughs> can't keep that bait going. That's a tough one. <laughs> it, it just gets sadder and sadder. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> this is something that happens in the Dune universe. So atomic weapons are around, and these are stockpiled by the great houses. Now, this is sort of a dissuasive mechanism, right? You have. <laughs> How do you keep people from attacking you? Well, you just have a big warehouse full of the most deadly weapons known to man. And you go, look at that big warehouse. Right. Don't, you know, don't mess with me. It's big. It's full of them. It's full of weapons. Exactly. And the the Atomics in Dune, I want to reiterate, the encyclopedia emphasizes the fact that early Atomics quote-unquote, the atomics that humans, modern humans use on Earth, were trifles right. compared to the atomics that the great houses in the Imperium in the, by the time of the Dune novels have. Like, the, the encyclopedia mentions how the atomics used on Hiroshima were only, only able to wipe out a small town. Right. Which implies that the atomics used by the great families and in the future are much worse. Yeah. Like, we're not talking mushroom cloud, you know, classic, that imagery of Hiroshima, World War II. We're talking way bigger atomic bombs. I mean, atomics were used to clear planets. Yeah. When you're looking at the history of the uses of atomics, it's like, oh, we needed to get rid of everything on that planet. <laughs> so we used a couple. Yep. Yep. You're, it's great point. I think the pitfall here is when we're talking about swords, we're basically talking about swords. <laughs> they're they're normal swords. Mm -hmm. When we're talking about atomics, atomic weapons, we are not necessarily talking about, you know, the 1940s United States atomic weapon. We're talking 20,000 years in the future. If you wanted to make something more powerful, how would you do it? That has been done. These are very, very serious uh, means of destruction. Right, right. But... I'm going to bring up Holtzman again because Holtzman's technology Love him. changes how even atomics are used in the Dune universe. Again, we can't reiterate yeah. how much Holtzman single-handedly changes the galaxy. Listen to our Holtzman episode. It's absolutely wild. Yeah. yeah. So Holtzman's technology changes how these atomics are used forever. Once shielding technology is in play, once specifically his Holtzman generator is in play, warfare changes a bit. So 
pre-Holtzman, sure. what you could do if you were, yeah. say, battling a great house. Like if the great house of Abu was battling the great house of Leo. <laughs> never. Would never happen. I surrender. W- <laughs> <laughs> He's got so many knives. If you- <laughs> Sleeps with a Chris knife. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Doesn't leave his house without his kinchal, that freak. So let- let's say hypothetically our houses are at war. Okay, sure. Okay. My armada could show up and destroy your fleet. Okay. Rude. Okay. And then I could just move in my atomic weapons and start bombarding your capital planet. Oh, not cool. With atomics until you surrendered, right? Yeah. Because your fleet's not going to stop me at this point. Yeah. Oof. That was pre-Holtzman. Boo. Post-Holtzman, after Holtzman, the Holtzman generator is created, after travel through the galaxy can happen at a much faster speed than it could before. This is wild. Nuking someone's capital became a risk because they could just get to your capital fast enough to nuke your capital. (laughs) You can fold space. You could fold space. And just atomics the hell out of them (laughs) in a moment. Right. It's wild. So this classic case of mutually assured destruction, I could not just show up at your doorstep and start bombing your capital city because you'd have a secret stockpile of nukes near my capital city that you would just sent through space and nuke me. Right, right. So Holtzman once again changes how atomics and weaponry are used in the Dune universe. And before where you could nuke a planet to oblivion, now you really can't. And in the modern Dune universe, by the time we get to the first novel, atomics are mostly a safeguard. Right, They're a big stick that you hold and you wave around in the hopes that no one else hits you with their stick. (laughs) Right. And we keep talking about Holtzman. We also keep talking about the Jihad. These are, like, very formative elements of the Dune universe. Yeah. The Jihad, again, has a massive effect on the use of uh, atomics. Now, during the Jihad, when they had this goal, let's wipe out all thinking machines, atomics were used all over the place. You know, just sprinkle them liberally on all of the planets and done, (laughs) you know? Machine world... Plus atomics equals right, right. A, a one battle as far as you're concerned. But the galaxy sees this, that sees the carnage. It sees the entire galaxy afterwards is left with this sort of strong anti-atomic feeling. Mm-hmm. This feeling of, no, that's really not cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really super not cool if you're using those. And in fact, it was so not cool. Yeah, It was so super not cool that... The Great Convention, which, what, was a few hundred years after the Butlerian Jihad, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. The Great Convention banned the use of atomics against other humans. You are not allowed to use atomics against other humans or else basically everyone's agreed. Right. Whoever did it, whoever did it is going to get just beat up by everyone else. Everyone's like, we hereby promise to beat the shit out of whoever uses (laughs) atomics. Done. (laughs) Yeah, and what's interesting is the great houses of the Imperium still keep their atomics. They've still got their stockpiles. Oh, yeah. You still need to carry that big stick around because you're a great house. You don't need a minor house usurping your throne and kicking you off and taking over. Uh, you need to assert your dominance. So the, right, right. many of the great houses that we come across in the Dune universe have these atomics they still own them. They still stockpile them. They're referred to in the novels as family atomics. So it's like... Cute. Yeah, very, a very cute way to talk about yeah. massively destructive weapons. But th- there have only actually been, since the Great Convention, 
two instances where these quote-unquote family atomics were used. And in both cases, there it doesn't go into great detail in the encyclopedia, but basically it was by usurpers or some like maniacal crazy leaders who shot off these nukes. And like we all agreed in the Great Convention, <laughs> right. everybody like quickly banded together, dealt with these crazy people, and made examples of them so that other people would be deterred from using these atomics. Right, right. So only two instances since the Great Convention, which happened 10,000 years before the first novel. Yeah, that's a long streak. Only two times have atomics been used, and both times they were dealt with quickly, and the people who used them were made into examples to strike fear into the hearts of anyone else thinking about pushing that big red nuke button. <laughs> so tempting, but don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. Don't do it. Now, speaking of deadly, scary weapons, right? we would be remiss in not mentioning the stone burner, which is such... Oh, this is awful. <laughs> this is such a terrifying and terrible weapon. The worst. And yeah. we want to tiptoe very carefully around the stone burner because you really deserve to experience it yourself in the Dune novels. But we do want to give our listeners and newcomers to the Dune universe some context for what it is. Right. Because like you mentioned earlier, how you got distracted and kind of pulled out of a scene when the Chris Knife unfixed vernacular was mentioned. Yeah. I also was pulled out when whenever a stone burner was mentioned because I, I was just confused by what it was. So we want to kind of set the scene and give you the uh, know-how to go into that to understand it. Right, right. So we categorized Stoneburner in this atomic discussion, but it's technically not an atomic weapon. Yeah. What it is is a huge bomb that releases an explosion that arcs straight up and straight down. <laughs> like a tall, terrible rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely terrifying stuff. And this explosion actually releases radiation. Obviously, it's a bomb, so it destroys a large area. So it felt apt to include it in, in this atomic weapons, right. weapons of mass destruction category. And a little fun fact, not super important, but its main power source is atomic, actually. There's a small, quote-unquote, small atomic explosion that takes place on the inside whatever sue us we're including it in this atomic <laughs> weapons category yeah let me explain what it is actually so like i said big bomb explosion goes straight up goes straight down and the stone burner can actually be calibrated and set to explode at varying levels of explosive power yeah and at its maximum power the stone burner can be set to explode straight through to a planet's core oh my god which results in the destruction of the planet, Leo, because, you know, the, the core is exposed. Got no core. <laughs> like... <laughs> you just blew up the core. Why would you do it's that? It's wild. It's absolutely wild. Oh, my God. So this is a dangerous piece of hardware, folks. Yeah. Don't go setting off stone burners on July 4th in your backyard. <laughs> tempting you're gonna cut straight to the planet's core <laughs> i mean at least it lets off like beautiful light right like at least it looks really pretty no not at all actually <laughs> that was a good setup good job Leo. that's good thank you thank you i saw the word light what the burner does release in addition to this massive explosion is a specific type of radiation yeah that attacks and dissolves eye tissue <laughs> So this means that all creatures and humans within a few kilometers oh are completely blinded by a stone burner explosion. 
absolutely fucking crazy. So specifically terrible. (laughs) So specifically terrifying. It just... It's wild. I want to know who made this. The encyclopedia doesn't go into detail. There's not a whole lot of detail on the stone burner beyond what it is and how destructive it is. Wow. Absolutely disgusting. But huge weapon of mass destruction. It exists in the Dune universe, and we just want to just prepare you for it. It is massive and terrifying and probably one of the most dangerous weapons that you come across in the novels. So moving on from from atomics, we're now into our kind of final category, and these are other things that you can anticipate maybe encountering. Now, we talked a lot about how in the Dune universe, biological training and techniques, and uh, sometimes even with the Tleilaxu as an example, uh, augmentation, where you're, you're actually increasing someone's capabilities to do something, there are a lot of hand-to-hand techniques used in the Dune universe. Mm-hmm. While it is true that, you know, we meet the Atreides, we meet House Atreides, it's kind of talked about that they have a way of fighting that makes them a formidable force, you know, and this includes hand-to-hand combat. Mm -hmm. And the same for the Sardaukar that we talked about before. They have methods, they have a training regimen, they have a, a means of getting the enemy onto the ground kind of thing, right? Right. But when it comes to named techniques, like named, you know, the jujitsus, the uh, aikidos, the, you know, karates of the Dune universe, we actually don't have many. There are a few. And really, the one that I wanted to talk about today is one of the ones that you will encounter in the first book, whether or not it's really talked about, and one that is present basically throughout all the books. And then maybe in a spoiler episode some other time, we'll talk about some of the other uh, methods that we see. Mm -hmm. But to start off, we're going to be talking about the Bene Gesserit, the sisterhood, the Bene Gesserit, have a method of fighting called the Weirding Way. And again, (laughs) one of those things that whenever I read it, I thought, what? (laughs) What? What What are you talking about? Right. And the research for this episode really helped me clear up my understanding of it to the point where I now am like excited to reread for the umpteenth time (laughs) those scenes. Yeah. Because now I know. Now I know what they are. And so will you. Exactly. Yeah. Whenever Weirding Way comes up, it's like walking into a room where everyone's talking about a thing that you've no one told like you never got the memo and you're yeah. just like yeah. what is everyone talking about you kind of play along you're like yeah i love what episode two the weirding yeah. way oh, great the <laughs> yeah. plot's wonderful and they're like no idiot and you're like oh no <laughs> nightmare <laughs> it's a hand-to-hand combat technique you fucking moron <laughs> oh no i don't have any friends <laughs> but to talk about the weirding way, we do have to talk about kind of what makes the weirding way possible. And this also kind of explains what it is. Now, the weirding way is made possible by a type of training called prana bindu training. And this is something that every single member of the Bene Gesserit Sisterhood trains in. And prana bindu training is effectively control over every single muscle and fiber and just every nerve of your entire body you can control and act with. I think about it like full body dexterity, 
right? Mm-hmm. We talked about the Tleilaxu face dancers who could manipulate muscles in their face to change appearance. That would be something that the Pranabendu training in theory would, would help you with because you're learning how to control every little muscle, right? Right. Now, consider a combatant who can control every muscle of their body. Yeah. It's really, it's, it's, it makes perfect sense why they would be a formidable fighting method and one worth naming, right? Mm-hmm. The weirding way is talked about as being, and I don't want to say too much because, again, the Bene Gesserit, there's a lot of mysteries around them and we don't want to kind of give you too much and take any joy out of that experience. But to say uh, the weirding way is a method of fighting close combat, uh, unarmed, hand to hand, that involves moving very, very quickly around your opponent's moves. So the opponent moves you either react or you have already moved around them. So very difficult to fight. Uh-huh. <laughs> I would not I would not want to. Again, House Abu is challenging House Leo and you say, and we've trained in the weirding way. I've already for I've I've surrendered. <laughs> you can you can take the you can you can take my bodkins, you can take my Chris knives, my <laughs> slip tips. Yeah, whatever. I want you all can, the kinjals you own. <laughs> Taking all the controls. <laughs> That's twice you've preemptively surrendered before I've even made a move. It's Leo. my favorite thing to do. It's the most fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're, you're completely right, though. The weirding way would be terrifying to go up against. I cannot imagine facing someone who has complete and utter control over every muscle, every nerve of their body. That's just – that's a level of athleticism that I cannot fathom. <laughs> I like – hurt my neck getting out of bed the other day so clearly (laughs) (laughs) exactly clearly i need to work on my prana bindu (laughs) right exactly and like you mentioned it's one of the few named techniques in the dune universe and the specifically the one we we wanted to talk about today but hand-to-hand combat plays a big part in the dune universe once again because of holtzman shields right right knife fighting hand-to-hand combat close quarters combat Anything that's not a high projectile weapon, what we traditionally imagine as warfare, does not make sense in the world of Dune because of these shields. So knowing how to fight with your hands and your feet and your fists, that's crucial to anyone who who's going to be getting into some scraps <laughs> right, in the right, Dune right. universe. <laughs> I hadn't notated this, but it's it's very worth mentioning. We talk about the weirding way in Pranabindu. Most people don't know about this. <laughs> I just wanted to emphasize this. This is very hard to master. Yeah. Yeah. Most people can't do it. And you now know what the Pranabendu training is and you know what the weirding way is. Most characters that you meet don't meet Benny Gesserit and think they're capable of this, just to be very clear. Right. Uh, this is just happens to be one of the techniques that was developed. I mostly wanted to talk about it because it's mentioned and never really explained. But know that the times it does come up, it's pretty surprising to everyone in the room. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no one's like, oh, yeah, that old trick. It's like, what just happened? <laughs> totally, totally. This is this is top secret Benny Gesserit stuff. Like the the Benny Gesserit aren't publishing books, Prana Bindu for dummies, <laughs> you know, like, right. <laughs> you have to be part of the Benny Gesserit to be allowed to go through this training and it's very secret it's not a youtube channel <laughs> yeah exactly no no one is no one is teaching you this on youtube you can't just google how to prana bindu there's no prana bindu at home you know regiment that, that's a good point that people even in the dune universe aren't aware 
of how powerful of a hand-to-hand technique this is. The, the Bene, this is one of the many tools that the Bene Gesserit have in, have in their playbook and that they use across the Dune series. And obviously we'll talk more about that in a future spoiler-filled Bene Gesserit episode, which I can't wait to get into. Oh, yeah. So to wrap up today's episode, we've mentioned the P word quite a bit this episode, Leo. <laughs> Uh, uh, I, wait, I know it. Um, uh, Uh thick tip. (laughs) (laughs) Poisons, poisons. We're talking about poisons. (laughs) Yeah. Poisons. Right. Poisons. Absolutely. So there are a couple of quick non-traditional weapons that we also wanted to bring up to round out today's episode. These are primarily used not in warfare, but by assassins and in assassinations and in subterfuge. So it's this is the deadly stuff that's used in the shadows. Well, and keep in mind, this is really, when you look at the timeline of Dune, this is most of the killing yes. <laughs> among big houses is now using poisons. And even in hand-to-hand combat, oftentimes this is employed. So really... I mean, maybe we should have started with poisons <laughs> because they're everywhere. They're used everywhere. by the elite. They're used by the people on the ground. They're everyone. Everyone's using poison in this heckin' world. So much poison. Yeah, yeah. So uh, these these are three weapons that we wanted to briefly mention and bring up to round out today's episode. First on the list is a weapon called a hunter seeker. Yeah. This is something we encounter in in the first two novel. The hunter seeker is a deadly, tiny, remote controlled machine. That was invented in 9846 AG. It flies. It floats, right? It it flies, right? It floats. I almost imagine it like a little tiny bug-like metallic sort of machine that someone someone with like a PlayStation controller is using, <laughs> like <laughs> uh, like a like a Wii U controller, <laughs> the only game console that survived. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And the and the key thing to know here is that the remote control is pretty shortwave <laughs> yeah so you're not like sitting across the planet on another continent controlling a hunter seeker that's about to murder the king or whatever you have to be fairly close by to be using this hunter seeker but it is deadly it's tiny hard to detect and it's poisonous of course fun fact actually floats on tiny suspensor fields mm. which is a holtzman thing so again holtzman holtzman take a shot <laughs> Amazing. Such an amazing man. <laughs> the drinking game that'll kill you. <laughs> Just like drink every time Holtzman comes up. Right, right. These were invented in, is this right, after Guild 9846 AG, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, about a thousand years. They've been around for, right. they've been around for a number of generations. <laughs> They're not quite as old as many of the things that we've talked about, but they've been around. Yeah. And uh, I want to mention, Leah, this is was really interesting, and I didn't know this. There's a little fun fact about the history of the Hunter Seekers. Yeah. Originally, Hunter Seekers were very secret and known only to House Carino, which is the ruling house. The emperors are from House Carino, and no one else knew about these things. Right, right. That is, until, and this is such a funny story, <laughs> until Emperor Elrud IX, one of the emperors, before the pages of dune tries to assassinate his son oh my god shaddam 
And Shaddam... Happy birthday, son. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> this is brutal. Yeah. So Elrude the Ninth is the father of Shaddam. Shaddam is the emperor that we encounter in the Dune novels. So this is maybe a generation before the Dune novels take place. <laughs> yeah. Elrude masterminds a plot to use a hunter-seeker against Shaddam, and Shaddam, with the help of a man named Fenring, who's his close friend and advisor, foils this plot publicly in court what a flex <laughs> what what an absolute flex and what results from this sort of public foiling of this plot against his life is that hunter seekers everyone knows about him now yeah, yeah. you know shadam is like this hunter seeker tried to take my life <laughs> everybody goes that what <laughs> right exactly so at this point hunter seekers become a thing that everyone knows about because shadam is so public about this plot against his life and this assassination attempt. Secondarily, what's really interesting is Shaddam also secretly at this point knows his father is involved because, like I said, before this point, no one but House Carino knows what a hunter-seeker is. Right, yeah. So there's a very small pool of people who could have tried to kill Shaddam, and it turns out his father was one of the masterminds behind this plot. It's It's absolutely bonkers, and it's such an interesting factoid for a, a simple weapon of assassination Yeah, that doesn't play the biggest of roles in the Dune universe, you know? Like, there's a lot of world building happening uh, behind the Hunter Seeker. And I, I thought that was just a real interesting story, that it was so secret for so long until this very public, uh, I assume, sort of scandal and assassination <laughs> against, against Shaddam, the future emperor at that point. You just imagine the, like, people who only show up at court for the drama. This is, like, the real <laughs> yes. housewives of Dune. Dude, I'd be one of those people. Oh, my God. Did you hear that, like, the father and son are trying to kill each other? That's crazy. That's What's going to happen on next episode? They used a hunter-seeker. Do you know about they these new a, things? I don't, I don't. I haven't heard about That's it. Crazy. What is it? Like, do you own a Wii? Tiny. Do you have a Wii at home? I can show you. <laughs> I do. <laughs> it's right next to my pile of bodkins. <laughs> Oh, man. All right. Uh, Leah, let's talk about this next weapon of assassination because it's... Heard of it. it I, <laughs> I love it. My favorite one. Favorite one. Best one. Best weapon. Say it on three, two, one, and then say it, okay? Okay. Three, two, one. Gamjabar, baby! <laughs> baby! That's us! That's us! And us! It us! <laughs> Oh, the Gamjabar. Uh, now, again, when we talk about the handful of tools and weapons and things that you could take from Dune and say this is em emblematic, this is uh, represents themes, and this is a big thing from Dune, the Gamjabar is up there. And it's part of why we named this podcast as we named it. Now, we've actually seen this in the trailer. We have. So, uh, okay, I, sh I should back up. The Gamjabar is a small poisoned needle and there there is a little bit of controversy i want to address this <laughs> the 1984 film depicts it as attached to a thimble and for over 20 years this was the only prominent image of a gamjabar so some online definitions of the gamjabar if you look up what a gamjabar is it says worn like affixed to the tip of a thimble which kind of makes sense. If you want a poison needle to be quickly accessible for like a quick jab with the, the, the aim and dexterity of the tip of your finger, then just put it on the tip of your finger. That makes it makes a certain sense. Yeah. But 
what we see in the trailer for the Denis Villeneuve movie is a reverend, a reverend mother who is holding this kind of um, this tiny needle. And uh, some people joked it kind of looks like the, the little swords that you like get in like the cherries in a, a cocktail uh, yeah, or something. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it's kind of cute little little needle. But deadly and poisonous. Point is, common theme here, it is uh, a needle covered in a poison that will kill you. So dead. 15 out of 10 <laughs> dead. You are so dead. Yeah. Terrifying stuff. And we saw one in the Dune trailer. Right. Yeah. In that scene where the woman in the shawl is talking to Timothy Chalamet, there's a quick shot of her holding this needle in her hand and bringing it right up. Yeah. Like a tiny, tiny centimeter away from his neck. And this is the deadly poison needle. Indeed. The Gamjabar, our namesake. Man, I had I can I could almost feel it from the way that they shot the needle so close to his neck. Oh, really it once you kind of recognize the deadly potential of the Gamjabar, yeah. it's oh, electric. So 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 electric. Yeah, definitely. So seems like that's what it's going to look like in the new movies. It's really cool. Looks beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're at the theater with your friends watching that scene, <laughs> feel free to turn yeah. to your friends and Tell them all about this podcast. You know, you can be like, That's, that needle's a gamja bar. Abu and Leo host a great podcast. Hey, yeah. It's named on that needle. <laughs> all right, Leo, let's wrap up this episode. The last yeah. poisonous thing we wanted to talk about yeah. is something called Chomurky, I believe. Ch- Chomurky. Yeah. Or Chomurky? Ch- 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 Shamurky. Shamurky. I don't know. Shamurky kind of sounds much more devious and dangerous. Like a 1950s <laughs> Motown song. Shamurky. So Chamurky or Shamurky is the generic name in the Dune universe given to poisons that are used in drinks. Yeah. Again, most, like you said earlier in the episode, most of the killing happening in the Dune universe at this point, at the point where the first novel starts, is assassinations, right, is right. stabbings in the dark, especially among royalty. Yeah, especially among the kind of high families. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Big wars don't really happen with these wealthy people, but Chamurki? All the time. All the time. <laughs> Just poison drinks left and right. Yeah, exactly. And we come to recognize how common this is and how much the characters and especially the more powerful characters the dukes the ladies are afraid of being poisoned because there are multiple mentions of a device called a poison snooper yeah that's used as a countermeasure to this type of poison in drinks whenever characters sit down at like a dinner scene or have a, have a drink or even eat food they will use a poison snooper or have a poison snooper nearby that will test the drinks and food for any types of poisons before they take a bite. It's very evident and very present in the Dune novels how much people in power are afraid of being poisoned because it's such a common thing. <laughs> Happens all the time, just constantly. Constantly. But when you play Clue in the Dune world, half of the time it's off-worlder murdered in the desert with a Chris knife mm-hmm. <laughs> and the other half of the time is nameless noble murdered via chamurki mm-hmm. at at dinner 
anywhere, <laughs> just in his bedroom. I don't know. Right. At his anniversary dinner, you know, like really rub it in. Yeah. So, oh, especially tragic. Tragic. Absolutely. <laughs> but makes for great television. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, Leo, what makes for a great podcast is when one of the hosts has poisoned the other one uh, before the recording session. Oh, no. And uh, that other one begins to die right at the end of the episode. Uh, the Chomarkey's kicking in, baby. Uh, I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. How seriously do I take that as a voice actor? Do I really go to town with some dying exertions? Or... <laughs> Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic. So help us spread the word of Mwadib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, he who controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the golden path. <laughs>